other concerns and questions. These concerns are secondary to all the above. These concerns do not matter if the foundational truth claims, Book of Mormon, First Visions, Prophets, Book of Abraham, Witnesses, Priesthood, Temples, etc. are not true. Number 1. Church's dishonesty and whitewashing over its history. Adding to the above deceptions and dishonesty over history, rock and hat translation, polygamy slash polyandry, multiple first vision accounts, etc., the following bother me. First bullet point. 2013 Official Declaration 2 Header Update Dishonesty. First sub-bullet point. Offending text. Early in its history, church leaders stopped conferring the priesthood on black males of African descent. Church records offer no clear insights into the origins of this practice. The following is a 1949 First Presidency Statement. August 17, 1949. The attitude of the church with reverence to Negroes remains as it has always stood. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord, on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church but that they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time. The prophets of the Lord have made several statements as to the operation of the principle. President Brigham Young said, Why are so many of the inhabitants of the earth cursed with a skin of blackness? It comes in consequence of their fathers rejecting the power of the holy priesthood and the law of God. They will go down to death, and when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain, and they will then come up and possess the priesthood, and receive all the blessings which we are now entitled to. President Wilford Woodruff made the following statement, The day will come when all that race will be redeemed and possesses all the blessings which we now have. The position on the church regarding the Negro may be understood when another doctrine of the church is kept in mind, namely, that the conduct of spirits in the premortal existence has some determining effect upon the condition and circumstances under which these spirits take on mortality, and that while the details of this principle have not been made known, the mortality is a privilege that is given to those who maintain their first estate and that the worth of the privilege is so great that spirits are willing to come to earth and take on bodies no matter what the handicap may be as to the kind of bodies they are to secure, and that among the handicaps, failure of the right to enjoy immortality the blessings of the priesthood is a handicap which spirits are willing to assume in order that they might come to earth. Under this principle there is no injustice whatsoever involved in this deprivation as to the holding of the priesthood by the Negroes. The First Presidency Along with the above First Presidency statement, there are many other statements and explanations made by prophets and apostles clearly justifying the church's racism. So the 2013 edition official Declaration 2 header in the scriptures is not only misleading, it's dishonest. We do have the records, including from the First Presidency itself, with very clear insights on the origins of the ban on the blacks. December 2013 Update the church released a new Race in the Priesthood essay, which contradicts their 2013 official Declaration 2 header. In the essay, they point to Brigham Young as the originator of the ban. Further, they effectively throw ten Latter-day Prophets, Seers, and Revelators under the bus as they disavow the theories that these men taught and justified for 130 years as doctrine and revelation for the church's institutional and theological racism. Finally, they denounce the idea that God punishes individuals with black skin 
or that God withholds blessings based on the color of one's skin, while completely ignoring the contradiction of the Keystone Book of Mormon teaching exactly this. Yesterday's revelation and doctrine is today's disavowed theories. Yesterday's prophets are today's disavowed heretics. Second bullet point. Zena Diantha Huntington Young. The following is a quick biographic snapshot of Zena. She was married for seven and a half months and was about six months pregnant with her first husband, Henry Jacobs, when she married Joseph after being told Joseph's life was in danger from an angel with a drawn sword. After Joseph's death, she married Brigham Young and had Young's baby while her first husband, Henry, was on a mission. Zena would eventually become the third General Relief Society president of the church. If anyone needs proof that the church is still whitewashing history in 2014, aside from the above-mentioned issues, Zena is it. The following are 100% LDS sources. Zena's biographical page on LDS.org. CCESletter.com for the hyperlink. First bullet point. In the marriage and family section, it does not list Joseph Smith as a husband or concurrent husband with Henry Jacobs. Second bullet point. In the marriage and family section, it does not list Brigham Young as a husband or concurrent husband with Henry Jacobs. Third bullet point. There is nothing in there about polyandry. Fourth bullet point. It is deceptive in stating that Henry and Zena did not remain together, while omitting that Henry separated only after Brigham Young took his wife and told Henry that Zena was now only his wife. This is Zena's index file on LDS-owned FamilySearch.org. Please see cesletter.com for the hyperlink to familysearch.org. It clearly shows all of Zena's husbands, including her marriage to Joseph Smith. Why is Joseph Smith not listed as one of Zena's husbands in the marriage and family section or anywhere else on her biographical page on lds.org? Why is there not a single mention or a hint of polyandry on her page or in that marriage section when she was married to two Latter-day Prophets and having children with Brigham Young while still being married to her first husband, Henry? Brigham Young's Sunday School Manual In the Church's Sunday School Manual, Teachings of the Presidents of the Church, Brigham Young, the Church changed the word wives to wife. Not only is the manual deceptive in disclosing whether or not Brigham Young was a polygamist, but it's deceptive in hiding Brigham Young's real teaching on marriage. The only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. Journal of Discourses, Chapter 11, Verse 269 Number 2. Church Finances First bullet point. Zero transparency to members of the church. Why is the one and only true church keeping its books in the dark? Why would God's one true church choose to keep them in darkness over such a stewardship? History has shown time and again that corporate secret wealth is breeding ground for corruption. Second bullet point. The church used to be transparent with its finances but stopped in 1959. Third bullet point. Estimated $1.5 billion megaball City Creek Center. Subpoint number one. Total church humanitarian aid from 1985 to 2011, $1.4 billion. Second sub-bullet point. Something is fundamentally wrong with the one true church spending more on an estimated $1.5 billion high-end mega mall than it has in 26 years of humanitarian aid. Third sub-bullet point. For an organization that claims to be Christ's only true church, this expenditure is a moral failure on so many different levels. 
For a church that asks its members to sacrifice greatly for temple building, such as the case of Argentinians giving the church gold from their dental work for the Sao Paulo Brazil temple, this mall business is absolutely shameful. Fourth sub-bullet point. Of all the things that Christ would tell the prophet, the prophet buys a mall and says, Let's go shopping! Of all the sum total of human suffering and poverty on this planet, the inspiration the brethren feel for his church is to get into the shopping mall business? Fourth bullet point. Hinckley made the following dishonest statement in a 2002 interview to a German journalist. Reporter. In my country, the, we say the people's churches, the Protestants, the Catholics, they publish all their budgets to all the public. Hinckley. Yeah, yeah. Reporter. Why is it impossible for your church? Hinckley. Well, we simply think that the, that, that information belongs to those who make the contribution and not to the world. That's the only thing, yes. Where can I see the church's books? I've paid tithing. Where can I go to see what the church's finances are? Where can current tithing-paying members go to see the books? The answer, we can't. Even if you made the contributions as Hinckley stated above, unless you're an authorized general authority or senior church employee in the accounting department with a non-disclosure agreement, you're out of luck. Hinckley knew this and for whatever reason made the dishonest statement. Fifth bullet point. Tithing. I find the following quote in the December 2012 enzyme very disturbing. If paying tithing means that you can't pay for water or electricity, pay tithing. If paying tithing means that you can't pay your rent, pay tithing. Even if paying tithing means that you don't have enough money to feed your family, pay tithing. The Lord will not abandon you. Would a loving, kind, emphatic God really place parents in the horrible position of having to choose whether to feed their children or pay what little they have to a multi-billion mega-mall-owning church that receives an estimated $8 billion in annual tithing receipts? Well, God tested Abraham by asking him to kill his son, and besides, the Lord will take care of them through the bishop's storehouse. Yes, the same God who tested Abraham is also the same crazy God who killed innocent babies and endorsed genocide, slavery, and rape. Besides, whatever happened to self-sufficiency? Begging the bishop for food when you had the money for food, but because you followed the above enzyme advice and gave your food money to the church, you're now dependent on the church for food money. Number 3. Names of the Church 1830. Church of Jesus Christ 1834. The Church of the Latter-day Saints 1838. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints After deciding Church of Jesus Christ on April 6, 1830, Joseph Smith made the decision on May 3, 1834 to change the name of the church to The Church of the Latter-day Saints. Why did Joseph take the name of Jesus Christ out of the very name of his restored church? The one and only true church on the face of the earth in which Christ is the head? See image at cesletter.com of the Kirtland, Ohio temple with a sign on the building that reads, House of the Lord, built by the Church of the Latter-day Saints, A.D. 1834. Four years later, on April 26, 1838, the church name was changed to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has remained ever since except the hyphen was added about a century later to be grammatically correct. Is it reasonable to assume that God would periodically change the name of his church? If Jesus Christ is the central character of God's religion on earth, and all things are to be done in his name, 
Is it reasonable to assume that God would instruct his church leaders to entirely leave out the name of Jesus Christ from the period of May 3, 1834 to April 26, 1838? What possible reason could there be for name changes? Why would Christ instruct Joseph to name it one thing in 1830, and then change it in 1834, and then change it again in 1838? Why would the name of Christ be dropped from his one and only true church for four whole years? What does this say about a church that claims to be restored and guided by modern revelation? If the prophet Joseph Smith couldn't even get the name right for eight years, then what else did he get wrong? Number four, anti-intellectualism. Some things that are true are not very useful. Boyd K. Packer gave an eye-opening talk to church education system instructors and faculty at a CES symposium on the Doctrine and Covenants in Church History on August 22, 1981, entitled, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. Packer said the following, There is a temptation for the writer or the teacher of church history to want to tell everything, whether it is worthy or faith-promoting or not. Some things that are true are not very useful. Joseph using a rock and a hat instead of the gold plates to translate the Book of Mormon is not a useful truth. The fact that there are multiple conflicting first vision accounts is not a useful truth. The fact that Joseph Smith was involved in polyandry when Doctrine and Covenants section 132 verse 61 condemns it as adultery is not a useful truth. He continues, That historian or scholar who delights in pointing out the weaknesses and frailties of present or past leaders destroys faith. A destroyer of faith, particularly one within the church, and more particularly one who is employed specifically to build faith, places himself in great spiritual jeopardy. Right, because being honest to members about Joseph's weakness and frailties of secretly marrying other men's wives while denying and lying about it to everyone for ten plus years just might destroy faith. But let's not teach this historical fact because some things that are true are not very useful. What's interesting about Packer's above quote is that he's focusing on history from the point of view that a historian is only interested in the weakness and frailties of present and past leaders. Historians are also interested in things like how the Book of Mormon got translated, or how many accounts Joseph gave about the foundational first vision, or whether the Book of Abraham even matches the papyri in facsimiles. Besides, it matters in the religious context what past and present leaders' weaknesses and frailties are. If Joseph's public position was that adultery and polygamy are morally wrong and condemned by God, what does it say about him and his character that he did exactly that in the dark while lying to Emma and everyone else about it? How is this not a useful truth? Irrelevant hypothetical example. President Monson gets caught with child pornography on his hard drive. This matters especially in light of his current position, status, and teachings on morality. Just because a leader wears a religious hat does not follow that they are exempt from history and accountability from others. The question should not be whether it's faith-promoting or not to share ugly but truthful facts. The question should be, is it the right thing to do? Is it the honest thing to do? Criticizing Leaders Dallin H. Oaks made the following disturbing comment in the PBS documentary, The Mormons. To view this video, go to cesletter.com and click on the Mormons hyperlink. It is wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Researching unapproved materials on the internet. First bullet point. 
Elder Quentin L. Cook made the following comment in the October 2012 conference. Some have immersed themselves in internet materials that magnify, exaggerate, and in some cases invent shortcomings of early church leaders. Then they draw incorrect conclusions that can affect testimony. Any who have made these choices can repent and be spiritually renewed. Second bullet point. Elder Dieter Uppdorf said the following in his CES talk, What is Truth? Remember that in the age of information, there are many who create doubt about anything and everything, at any time and every place. You will find even those who still claim that they have evidence that the earth is flat, that the moon is a hologram, it looks like it a little bit, and that certain movie stars are really aliens from another planet. And it is always good to keep in mind just because something is printed on paper, appears on the internet, is frequently repeated, or has a powerful group of followers, doesn't make it true. Who cares about whether you have received information from a stranger, television, book magazine, comic book, napkin, or even the scary internet? They're all mediums or conduits of information. It's the information itself, its accuracy, and its relevance that you need to focus on and be concerned with. With all of this talk from general authorities against the scary internet, and daring to be balanced by looking at what both defenders and critics are saying about the church, it is as if questioning and researching and doubting is now the new pornography. Truth has no fear of the light. President George A. Smith said, If a faith will not bear to be investigated, if its preachers and professors are afraid to have it examined, their foundation must be very weak. Under Cook's counsel, Fair Mormon and unofficial LDS apologetic websites are anti-Mormon sources that should be avoided. Not only do they introduce to Mormons internet materials that magnify, exaggerate, and in some cases invent shortcomings of early church leaders, but they provide many ridiculous answers with logical fallacies and omissions while leaving members confused and hanging with a bizarre version of Mormonism. What about the disturbing information about early church leaders in the church which are not magnified or exaggerated or invented? What about the disturbing facts that didn't come from the flat earthers or moon hologrammers, but instead from the church itself? Are those facts invalid when someone discovers them on the scary internet? What happens when a member comes across Elder Russell M. Nelson's obscure 1992 talk, or the church's new December 2013 Book of Mormon translation essay, where they learn for the first time in their lives that the Book of Mormon was not translated as depicted in Sunday schools? Enzymes, MTC general conference addresses, or visitor centers? Is this member in need of repentance when he's troubled by this inconsistency and deception? Is it the member's fault for discovering the Book of Mormon translation depiction still perpetuated by the church? Why is the member required to repent for coming to the conclusion that something is very wrong? Most of the information I discovered and confirmed online about the church is found from church-friendly sources. I confirmed Joseph's polygamy slash polyandry from LDS-owned FamilySearch.org. I confirmed Adam-God theory and other doctrines taught by Brigham Young from the Journal of Discourses. I confirmed Nelson's Rock in the Hat endorsement from his 1992 talk buried on LDS.org. Even reading the scriptures and seeing all of its problems can cause members to question and doubt. If it wasn't for the internet, I'd still find the information from physical books. Like the internet, books contain positive and negative, as well as true and false information about the church, and everything else on earth. Are physical books to be avoided as well? 
And it is always good to keep in mind just because something is printed on paper, appears on the internet, is frequently repeated, or has a powerful group of followers doesn't make it true. The exact same thing can be said of Mormonism and LDS.org. Going after members who publish or share their questions, concerns, and doubts. First bullet point, September 6. The September 6 were six members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who were excommunicated or disfellowshipped by the LDS Church in September 1993, allegedly for publishing scholarly work on Mormonism or critiquing church doctrine or leadership. A few months before the September 6, Boyd K. Packer made the following comment regarding the three enemies of the church. The dangers I speak of come from the gay-lesbian movement, the feminist movement, both of which are relatively new, and the ever-present challenge from the so-called scholars or intellectuals. Boyd K. Packer, All Church Coordinating Council, May 18, 1993. Second bullet point. Strengthening the Church Members Committee, SCMC. The spying and monitoring arm of the church. It is secretive, and most members have been unaware of its existence since its creation in 1985, after President Ezra Taft Benson took over. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland admitted it still exists in March 2012. The historical evidence in the September 6 points to SCMC's primary mission being to hunt and expose intellectuals and or disaffected members who are influencing other members to think and question despite Holland's claim that it's a committee primarily to fight against polygamy. When the prophet speaks, the debate is over. N. Eldon Tanner, first counselor in the first presidency, gave a first presidency message in the August 1979 ensign that includes the following statement. When the prophet speaks, the debate is over. Some things that are true are not very useful. Plus, it is wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true, plus spying and monitoring on members, plus intellectuals are dangerous, plus when the prophet speaks the debate is over, plus obedience is the first law of heaven, equals policies and practices you'd expect to find in a totalitarian system such as North Korea or George Orwell's 1984, not from the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a believing member, I was deeply offended by the accusation that the church was a cult. How can it be a cult when we're good people who are following Christ, focusing on family, and doing good works in and out of the church that bears his name? When we're 14 million members? What a ridiculous accusation! It was only after I lost my testimony and discovering for the first time the SCMC and the anti-intellectualism going on behind the scenes that I could clearly see the above cultish aspects of the church and why people came to the conclusion that Mormonism is a cult.